Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Illinois. But this episode is going to be a little different because today I am joined by my good friend and fellow true crime podcast host, Tyler Allen. Tyler hosts the very popular podcast, The Minds of Madness. It is such an incredible podcast, so well-researched, so well-put-together, and I cannot wait to dive into this case together. With all of that being said, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. British school children are instructed to memorize this rhyme as a clever mnemonic to remember the fates of each of Henry VIII's wives. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And tragically, for the four wives of one crooked police officer, a similar mnemonic could be utilized. Divorced, divorced, murdered and missing. However, instead of taking place in 16th century England, this chilling case began to unravel in the heart of suburban Illinois two decades ago. Join me now as we delve into the saga of broken marriages and an unfaithful husband who discarded wives like a modern-day Henry VIII. You'll hear about a murder-for-hire plot and a case that examines the thin blue line between those who enforce the law and those who break it. This case first begins to unravel in the suburb of Bolingbrook, Illinois, just a 35-minute drive southwest of Windy City, Chicago. It's a village so idealistic, it's made its way this year onto Forbes' list of the 50 best places for families to live. It was there in October of 2001 when a mysterious letter arrived in the mailbox of Kathleen Peterson. Although the envelope was thin, there was something about it that made it seem substantial. Maybe it was because the letter was casually addressed to the woman of the house as Kathy Peterson instead of Kathleen. Almost like the letter had come from a friend, but there was no return address on it. 38-year-old Kathleen snapped the mailbox shut and walked back up the driveway of her suburban home in Bolingbrook, Illinois. It was a really nice place to live. The lawns were neatly trimmed, minivans and sports cars glinted in the driveways. The homes were also large and comfortable looking, even if there was a uniformity to them on the quiet cul-de-sac. It was the kind of neighborhood that made for the perfect backdrop in a Lifetime movie. What Kathleen didn't know yet was that one day it would be. 11 years after receiving this mysterious letter, Kathleen would be played by actress Cara Buono, and her husband Drew would be severely miscast as Rob Lowe. When Kathleen brought the letter inside and opened it, it contained just a single page and the words were typed, as if to further conceal the writer's identity. The first line of the letter read, Kathy, this letter is being sent to you for your benefit. At this point, you are probably well aware that your husband is having an affair. For most wives, a letter like this would have come as a complete shock. But for Kathleen, it wasn't surprising. She knew her husband Drew had cheated on her, but it was who he was cheating on her with that was the final straw, a 17-year-old. The letter ended with a warning, protect yourself and your family. Three years after receiving this letter, 
Kathleen Peterson would be found dead under the most bizarre circumstances. I did not kill Kathleen! Yes, you did, Kathleen knew her husband was a cheater because when they first started dating, Kathleen herself had at one time been the other woman, but unwittingly so. Kathleen Savio met Drew on a blind date back in 1992 when she was in her late 20s, and at the time he had told her that he was divorced, when in reality he was still very much married to his second wife, Vicki Connolly. This was pre-Google era, which meant that Kathleen had no way of finding out anything more about Drew besides what he told her. The first date with Drew was odd to say the least. For starters, he had brought along a gift to present to Kathleen, and it wasn't a bouquet of flowers or chocolates or even jewelry like a normal person, no. Instead, Drew brought along a 4x7 framed photo of himself. In the photo, Drew was wearing his police uniform with the words, tell me you love me, scrawled on the frame. It is giving it's gonna be a no from me vibes, and ladies, let's go ahead and add this to our growing list of red flags. While presenting a framed photo of himself to a woman he had just met for the first time was laughably arrogant, what he had written on it screamed needy and insecure. And as we'll see, this blatant contradiction was intrinsic to every aspect of Drew's life. While both the framed photo and the note that came with it gives all of the ick and secondhand embarrassment in hindsight, Kathleen was at a point in her life where she just wanted to settle down and start a family. Kathleen's childhood hadn't been easy after her parents divorced when she was young. Her father blew off his responsibility of paying child support and her stepfather didn't work, which meant the onus of making a livable income was solely on her mother. Kathleen and her siblings were all eager to leave home as soon as they were old enough, and for Kathleen, that was younger than most. After dropping out of high school, Kathleen started working and gaining her independence. At 17, she moved into her own apartment, then managed to get her GED, then her associate's degree, and later a successful career at an accounting firm. When Kathleen went on her first date with Drew, she'd just gotten out of a five-year relationship. She found Drew charming and funny, a sweet talker who called her my love and messaged her throughout the day telling her that he missed her. What may have seemed most promising to her was that Drew appeared very eager to move forward to a committed relationship with her, which hadn't been the case in her last relationship. On paper, Drew Peterson was a catch. He was a police sergeant with the Bolingbroke Police Department and had spent years working undercover, a bad boy edge that Kathleen found attractive. He also owned a popular bar named Sud's Pub and came across as generous, showering Kathleen with gifts. Those early days with Drew were a romantic whirlwind and some might even call it the honeymoon phase of a relationship, but today, 
Looking back, it was more like love bombing, a manipulative tactic used by narcissists and abusers in romantic relationships. Initially, they bombard their romantic target with excessive attention and gifts to quickly gain their affection. But once they've secured their target's affection, the facade crumbles, giving away to a toxic cycle of coercive behaviors in order to gain full control in the relationship. In those early days of being love-bombed, Kathleen couldn't help but fall in love with the version of himself Drew had presented. And once she found out he was still married and living with his whole entire wife, Drew explained it all away by saying the marriage was over long before they had met. And so, in 1992, only two months after Drew's divorce was finalized, Kathleen and Drew were married. The thing about Drew Peterson was that it appeared he enjoyed getting married a whole lot more than marriage itself. And he seemed to have a special affinity for young women in need of a father figure. From outward appearances, Drew had a typical childhood. His father was a Marine and his mother was a homemaker. Drew graduated in 1972, and while he considered following in his father's footsteps by joining the Marines, he eventually decided to join the Army instead because he wanted to be a part of the military police. At age 20, Drew married Carol Hamilton, a high school sweetheart who was just 17, and the couple moved to Virginia, where Drew attended military police training. By 1977, the couple was back in Illinois and Drew had become a member of the Bolingbrook Police Department. The following year, he received orders to join the esteemed Metropolitan Area Narcotics Squad. Being an undercover cop naturally involves a certain level of deception. It's an integral part of the job, and Drew excelled at it. He skillfully transformed himself, letting his hair grow long and immersing himself in the dangerous world of criminal drug dealers participating in their illegal activities at night. By day, Drew seamlessly returned to the safety of his suburban home where he was admired as a law-abiding citizen. In 1979, Drew's exceptional undercover work earned him the prestigious title of Cop of the Year. But Drew wasn't about to win Husband of the Year because when Carol was pregnant with their second child, she found out that he had been having multiple affairs and in 1980, after six years of marriage, they divorced. Soon after, he was engaged to 20-year-old Kyle Pyrie. Drew was 27. The age discrepancy was double what it had been between him and Carol, something that would become a pattern for Drew. But just as Drew slid a ring onto Kyle's finger, it appeared his facade of being the charming, funny, esteemed police officer seemed to slip away as well, replaced by a controlling and possessive fiancé. After four months, Kyle could see her independence slipping away, and she decided to break it off. For the next 18 months, Drew relentlessly trailed Kyle in his police cruiser, finding various reasons to pull her over, whether it was for parking violations or minor infractions. But when Kyle called the Bolingbrook Police Department to complain about Drew's behavior, her complaints were swept under the rug. This too, it would seem, would also become another pattern for Drew. Drew even pulled Kyle into the back of his cruiser once to arrest her for unpaid parking tickets, tickets 
She had no idea Drew had even written for her. But when Kyle told the police officer in the cruiser that she had dated Drew, the other officer persuaded Drew to let her go. In 1982, Drew moved on from harassing Kyle and began pursuing 23-year-old Vicki Connolly, a single mother with a daughter. Vicki was sitting in a Bolingbroke bar watching a band with friends when Drew walked up to her, asked her to dance, and bought all of her friends drinks. Vicki would later tell the Chicago Tribune that Drew oozed confidence. He set his eyes on me and it was like he was going to get me. He couldn't get me to move in fast enough with him. He thought he took me away to a better life. It's ironic, he really did believe that. Initially, things seemed promising though, but as the saying goes, a leopard never changes its spots and Drew did not stop cheating. The concept known as the gamification of love usually refers to how the addictive mechanics of dating relationships and reality TV shows like The Bachelor have made courtship more about winning a person over than initiating a loving relationship. This seemed especially true for Drew who appeared addicted to those early stages of relationships when he was role-playing the best version of himself. In the beginning, just like his other relationships, Drew's marriage to Vicky started off wonderful. As a blended family, Vicky and Drew helped raise each other's children and opened up a bar together called Suds Pub. Drew also continued working as an undercover narcotics officer and prided himself on how good he was at deceiving people. But eventually, this double life, zigzagging back and forth between lawfulness and lawlessness, eventually led Drew to getting fired in 1985. He went a little too rogue when he was working on a case against a drug dealer and was found guilty by the Bolingbroke Fire and Police Commission of official misconduct, disobedience, and failure to report a bribe. But Drew fought the charge and was reinstated after a judge overruled the commission's ruling. It was during this time, Vicky found out that Drew had been cheating on her and she forgave him. Drew loved being a cop. It was intrinsic to his identity and Vicky would later report that something snapped in Drew after he was briefly stripped of his badge. Despite being the one who cheated on Vicky, he became paranoid that she was cheating on him and he bugged their house, recording everything Vicky was doing. Drew also grew increasingly more controlling and even pulled a gun on Vicky on at least three separate occasions. When Vicky wanted out of the marriage, Drew threatened he could kill her and make it look like an accident. Coincidentally, Vicky was soon involved in a terrible car accident when her brakes suddenly stopped working. Although she did make a full recovery, it has been long speculated that Drew may have cut her brake line. Ultimately, Drew wanted to be the one to decide when the relationship was over, so despite being married to Vicky, he openly dated and only agreed to a divorce once he set his eyes on someone new. Drew was adamant when he agreed to divorce Vicky that she wouldn't get any of his police pension and threatened her against challenging him over it. 
the threat worked. Vicky forfeited her spousal claim and everything else was divided equally down the middle. Drew was now free to move on to the next woman who caught his attention, and that was Kathleen. Just six months after their odd first date, involving that framed photo of Drew, Kathleen was engaged and married to Drew on May 3rd, 1992, just after his divorce with Vicky was finalized. At the time, Kathleen was 28 and Drew was 38. Once again, the early years of yet another Peterson marriage seemed blissful. Kathleen and Drew had two sons together, ran the Suds pub together, with Kathy doing the accounting. But soon after the boys were born, the honeymoon period of their marriage ended, and the real Drew Peterson surfaced once again. Starting with Drew calling Kathleen names and making derogatory comments about her weight. With each marriage, it seemed Drew became increasingly more suspicious he was being cheated on, despite being the one doing the cheating. But with Kathleen, there was one noticeable difference. Kathleen's sister first began to notice signs of abuse when she began seeing bruises on her. In one family photo, Kathleen actually had a black eye, which she told her sister Drew had given her. Medical records would later also confirm Drew's pattern of abuse. In October of 2001, that was the state of Kathleen's marriage. It was also the same month she'd received the anonymous letter in the mail. For Kathleen, that letter was the final blow to her already disintegrating marriage. Not because the letter indicated he'd been having an affair, but because of who he was having an affair with. 17-year-old Stacy Kales. For the Bolingbroke police sergeant, having an affair with a 17-year-old hadn't meant only breaking his marriage vows, it also meant he was breaking the law. While the age of consent in Illinois is 17, the anonymous writer told Kathleen that because of Drew's position of authority, he could be criminally charged for the affair. The letter went on to say that Drew's affair with a teenager was an ongoing joke within the police department, all the way up the power chain to the mayor of Bolingbrook. But the letter stated they had taken no action because reprimanding Drew would bring embarrassment to the police department. The writer also exposed other alleged corrupt actions by Drew, such as dishonestly planting cocaine during a drug raid to orchestrate a high-profile arrest all in an attempt to solidify his position of importance within the Bolingbroke department. The letter claimed he did this in order to appear indispensable to the department and overshadow other indiscretions. Beware, the letter sender wrote in capital letters, who you talk to within the police department, i.e. mayor, chief, chief deputy. Protect yourself and your family. This closing warning foretold the unanswered pleas Kathleen would make as the bitter and contentious divorce process began. Stacy Kales was just 16 years old and working as a front desk clerk at a Bolingbroke hotel when she met Drew. Drew was working the night shift and his partner at the time was dating another woman who also worked at the hotel. The two cops would go to the hotel under the guise of doing a sweep and checking up on things so Drew's partner could visit his girlfriend. During their visits, Stacy was easily impressed by Drew, and soon they were dating. At first, 
Stacy kept the relationship a secret from family and friends. When she finally did tell people she was dating a man nearly 30 years older than herself, those closest to her were not surprised. Born in 1984 to parents struggling with addiction, Stacy had an older half-sister from her mother's previous marriage, as well as an older brother and sister. However, Stacy never met her older sister, Jessica, because when her mother, Christina, was eight months pregnant with Stacy, a fire broke out in the family home, and Jessica, only one and a half years old, died. Stacy's parents would go on to have two more daughters, Cassandra and Lacey, but devastatingly, the Kales would again experience tragedy when Lacey died of sudden infant death syndrome. The emotional toll of losing two children in two years exacerbated Christina's alcoholism and her mental health started to spiral. In the aftermath, she'd frequently abandon her children, get in trouble with the law, and be in and out of psychiatric hospitals. Allegedly, their father was not much better as he would leave the Kale children to frequently fend for themselves. Stacy's mother would eventually forsake her children for good when Stacy was only 14 years old. Christina grabbed her Bible, told her kids she was going to church, and left, never to be seen again. It's believed that she was murdered by an abusive boyfriend, but her body was never found. Eerily, history would repeat itself. According to Shannon Baikowski in the true crime novel Fatal Vows written by Joseph Hosey, Stacy had confided she'd had a troubled childhood. Sharon had grown close to Stacy when they were neighbors while Stacy was married to Drew. According to Candace Aiken, Stacy's aunt, again from the book Fatal Vows, Stacy's father eventually became so neglectful that Stacy and her younger sister Cassandra were facing placement in foster care. But her oldest half-sister, Tina, came to the rescue and took Stacy and Cassandra in to live with her. Despite the adversity she faced in her troubled past, Stacy graduated high school early with dreams of becoming a nurse. When she met Drew, Stacy saw him as a source of stability, something that had very much been absent throughout her tumultuous childhood. When Drew and Stacy started dating, he was still married to Kathleen. But instead of keeping his mistress away from his wife, he regularly snuck Stacy into the basement of the Peterson home while Kathleen and the kids slept upstairs on the second floor. But after receiving the anonymous letter, divorce proceedings began. By this point, Drew was a well-practiced divorcee. However, in Kathleen's case, if he had any expectation that he was going to bully her out of her share of assets, Drew was wrong because Kathleen wasn't about to let Drew intimidate her out of what was rightfully hers, such as child support, the sale of their Suds pub, and her share of Drew's police pension. Interestingly, after splitting up, Drew decided to buy a house on the very same cul-de-sac as the house he once shared with Kathleen and his children. This meant that not only did Kathleen now have to endure seeing her ex and Stacy out and about, it appeared Drew 
was attempting to pit the two women against each other as well. Kathleen would later claim that Drew would often call her crazy, that she was an addict and a bad mother. She also said Drew and Stacy would rollerblade past her home, but would always make sure to stop for long periods of time so Kathleen would notice them. If she did, they gave her the finger. According to Drew and Kathleen's custody agreement, Drew was to get the kids every second weekend and some weekdays. It was during these exchanges of the children that many of the altercations between Kathleen and Drew took place, with sometimes even Stacy getting involved. Over the next two years, the police were called to Kathleen's house 19 times. And for a little context here, according to several different government websites, the average person only calls 911 twice in their lifetime. On two occasions, Kathleen was charged with assault for allegedly hitting Stacy, but the charges were quickly dropped. Drew even arrested Kathleen once, pushing her down to the ground in front of their children. But again, that did not stick either for obvious reasons. However, Drew's persistent harassment of Kathleen aimed at coercing her into relinquishing her share of his pension escalated into something way more sinister. Drew called Kathleen and threatened her life, stating he wanted her dead and would burn her house down. In response, Kathleen filed an order of protection against Drew, detailing Drew's history of abuse, stating that he had pushed her into walls, restrained her, ripped necklaces off of her neck, and chased her with a fire poker. Kathleen's sister claimed she told her that Drew was going to kill her and make it look like an accident. So Kathleen had all the locks to her house changed. But on July 5th, 2002, this didn't stop Drew from using the garage door opener to gain access and cutting a hole in the drywall to get inside. He then surprised Kathleen as she was coming down the stairs with a laundry basket. Kathleen dropped the laundry and Drew pushed her back on top of the stairs, dressed in his full SWAT uniform. For the next several hours, Drew held a knife on Kathleen, threatening her life and telling her over and over again he didn't want to pay her anything. Kathleen believed Drew was going to kill her that night, but he didn't. He backed off when Kathleen told him to just get it over with. Sadly, after Drew left, Kathleen didn't even bother calling police. She'd learned from experience that the Bolingbrook Police Department had always taken Drew's side. During their marriage, she'd gone to the hospital twice with injuries she claimed were caused by Drew. Still, police had never been willing to intervene. Instead, Kathleen decided to try and circumvent the police department by sending a letter directly to the Will County Assistant State's Attorney. In that letter, Kathleen detailed what happened to her the night Drew broke in, stating she knew from experience that the Bolingbroke PD would do nothing to help her, that Drew knew how to manipulate the system. The letter to the state's attorney was a plea for help, but that too went unanswered. When Drew left Kathleen and the boys, he also walked out on several thousand dollars in unpaid bills and taxes. All the while, Drew was spending money left and right on Stacy, including cosmetic surgery and trips to Mexico and Disneyland. On October 10th, 2002, 
Kathleen and Drew's marriage was officially dissolved, but there was a unique twist to their divorce proceedings. Although they were no longer man and wife, the court agreed to let Drew and Kathleen settle the matter of their marital assets at a later date. Just three days after getting divorced, Drew married now 18-year-old Stacy, and a civil court trial to settle Drew and Kathleen's assets was set for April 2004, 18 months later. But Kathleen would never get her day in court. Only one month before the trial date, Drew went over to drop the boys off at Kathleen's house, but she didn't answer the door. So Drew waited until the following day and tried Kathleen again, but got no answer. Drew then asked the neighbors to meet him in a locksmith at Kathleen's house to check on her. When the locksmith opened the door, Drew asked the neighbors to go in the house first, claiming that things were so bad between him and Kathleen that if he went in first, his ex-wife would make wild accusations that he likely stole or ruined something. It would be the neighbors who discovered Kathleen, face down in her bathtub. Drew then ran upstairs behind them, and when he saw Kathleen's body, cried out, what would he tell his children, and called the police. When police arrived, they discovered a large gash on the back of Kathleen's head, and although the bathtub was now dry, Kathleen's hair was wet and her fingertips were wrinkled. Naturally, Police questioned Drew about his whereabouts, but he had a rock-solid alibi. He'd been with Stacy all night. The scene itself showed no evidence of foul play. The bathtub was neat and tidy, as was the rest of the house. A gold chain around Kathleen's neck was still intact, suggesting she hadn't been involved in any kind of physical altercation. It looked as though Kathleen had accidentally fallen, hit her head and drowned. But how does someone drown in an empty bathtub? The theory was, the tub had slowly drained between the time Kathleen hit her head and when her body was found. Kathleen was just 40 years old and had no drugs or alcohol in her system. Realizing they had a conflict of interest on their hands, the Bolingbrook PD handed the case off to the Illinois State Police. An autopsy would later reveal that Kathleen had indeed drowned. A coroner's inquest was held to rule out foul play. Oddly, Drew was not called on to testify at the inquest. Conveniently for Drew, he was now granted full custody of his children, no longer had to worry about paying child support or splitting his police pension. He was free to move forward with his new life with Stacy. After Kathleen passed away, Drew produced a handwritten will allegedly signed by Kathleen, leaving her entire estate to him. The estate valued at nearly $300,000 had Drew's uncle assigned as the executor. Drew later sold Kathleen's house, netting $287,000. He had previously sold their jointly owned bar for $325,000, pocketing all of those proceeds. In April of 2005, 
Drew's uncle transferred all of Kathleen's assets and money to Drew. Additionally, there was a $1 million life insurance policy in Kathleen's name, but the beneficiaries were listed as her two sons. By the time of Kathleen's death, Stacy and Drew already had two children of their own, a boy and a girl. And again, at first, things were going well between the couple. Stacy legally adopted the boys Drew and Kathleen had shared and treated them like her own. That meant now, in her early 20s, Stacy was a mother of four children. And according to practically anyone who knew the Petersons, Stacy had grown into a doting, loving, and responsible mother to all the Peterson children. But like all of Drew Peterson's marriages, things eventually began to deteriorate. Again, Drew became increasingly possessive and would inundate Stacy with phone calls every time she left the house. And even though she was in nursing school, Drew would refuse to watch their youngest children if she needed time to study because he didn't want her leaving the house. According to Stacy's younger sister, Cassandra, Drew didn't even allow Stacy to carry cash. If she went grocery shopping and was late getting home, Drew would check over her receipts to make sure she didn't go anywhere else. It was like he was playing detective, making sure her shopping timeline held up. Drew's paranoia that Stacy was going to cheat on him ratcheted up to outright stalking, to the point that if Stacy went out with friends or family, Drew would watch from the parking lot or just show up unannounced. Stacy convinced Drew to meet with Reverend Neil Shorey to get marital counseling, but Drew was suspicious of the pastor and ended the session early. Drew's possessiveness and need to control every aspect of Stacy took on a new level when Stacy found out that her half-sister Tina, her one remaining mother figure, was dying of cancer. When Stacy spent time with her sister at the hospital, Drew became jealous and wanted her at home instead. When Tina succumbed to the cancer at just 31 years old, Stacy was beyond devastated. In the days surrounding Tina's funeral, Stacy understandably wanted to spend time with her aunt and younger sister, which made Drew irate. Anything that took Stacy's attention away from Drew only seemed to trigger his rage, and he started threatening Stacy just like he had with all of his previous wives. Stacy's dream of having the perfect family, unlike the one she had grown up in, was now slipping away. Although she could see the negative impact Drew's toxic behavior was having on the children, it seemed like there was no way out. She certainly didn't have the financial means to leave. As time went on, Stacy became increasingly isolated, with Drew only wanting her to spend time with his immediate family and their neighbor Sharon. Fearful of Drew, Stacy started to confide in those closest to her that she wanted to leave the marriage. She knew freeing herself of Drew was not going to be easy, and she knew what he was capable of. And as we've discussed in too many cases, statistically, women are the most at risk for domestic violence when leaving an abusive relationship. By October 2007, Stacy was practically a prisoner in her own home and couldn't take it anymore. 
She told family and friends that she feared for her life, but finally, on October 26, asked Drew for a divorce. Ironically, she contacted the same divorce attorney Kathleen had used. The following day, on October 27th, Stacy's sister Cassandra came over and Stacy revealed she finally told Drew she wanted out of the marriage. Stacy and Cassandra then made plans to meet at 10 a.m. the following day to paint a house with a friend. Cassandra left Stacy's home just before midnight. The next morning, October 28th, Stacy's friend called her around 10 in the morning to discuss their plans to paint the house with Cassandra. But Stacy informed the friend she was running late and would meet up with them later in the day. It was the last time anyone would hear Stacy's voice. Throughout the day, Cassandra attempted to call Stacy numerous times, knowing all about Drew's alleged abuses, but got no answer. So she decided to drive over to Stacy's house to check on her late in the evening at around 11 p.m. After arriving at the Peterson home, Cassandra saw that both Drew and Stacy's cars were missing from the driveway. When she knocked on the front door, Drew's oldest son told her that Stacy and Drew had gotten into an argument and that Stacy had taken off, that Drew was currently out looking for her. Because Stacy wasn't answering her phone, Cassandra decided to call Drew's cell phone from a nearby grocery store and he picked up. According to Drew, what his son had told Cassandra had been true. He had argued with Stacy and she had run off but he said he'd been out looking for her and then added something strange. He told Cassandra that he was back home again, something Cassandra believed must have been a lie because she just left his home minutes earlier. She also noticed he seemed out of breath and she could hear what sounded like Drew putting the keys in his ignition. Cassandra knew she needed to inform authorities, but she was also very well aware that the Bolingbrook Police Department had a history of protecting Drew, so instead she attempted to file a missing police report at a police station 25 minutes north of Bolingbrook. Unfortunately, the tactic didn't work and she was told to file the report with the Bolingbrook PD. At 2 in the morning, Cassandra drove back to Drew's house and saw both cars now in the driveway. But she wasn't done trying to find her sister and asked a friend to try calling Drew to ask where Stacy was. Drew's story was that Stacy had packed a bikini in her passport, stole $25,000, and had left her car at the airport to run off with another man. By 4 a.m., Cassandra filed the missing persons report with the Illinois State Police. Two days after Stacy went missing, Drew's stepbrother, Thomas Morphy, fell into a depression and started drinking heavily. Intoxicated, Thomas headed over to a friend's house and said he had a confession to make. He believed he had unwittingly helped Drew move Stacy's body. According to Thomas Morphy, this is how it happened. The day before Stacy went missing, Drew met with Thomas and complained about Stacy. 
He told Thomas she had been cheating on him, but that he would take care of it. Drew then suddenly switched gears and asked Thomas if he loved him. Thomas said he did, but then Drew asked, but do you love me enough to kill for me? Thomas said he replied, no, that he wasn't capable of murder and Drew dropped him back off at his house. The next day on October 28th, Drew unexpectedly showed up on Thomas's doorstep and asked him to go for a ride. According to Thomas, he said he needed a favor. After picking up coffee from Starbucks, Drew dropped Thomas off at a park and handed him his own personal cell phone, instructing him not to answer the phone for any reason. For nearly an hour, Thomas waited around at the park, waiting for the phone to ring, and then suddenly it did. But the caller ID showed the call was coming from Stacy's number. Then, according to Thomas, Drew returned to the park, picked him up, and then asked for yet another favor. Would he help him move something heavy out of his bedroom? Thomas agreed. Back at Drew's house, Thomas said he helped Drew carry out a large, heavy blue barrel down the stairs and into the back of Drew's SUV. Drew then handed Thomas some money and stated, this never happened. But Thomas knew something was wrong. The barrel they moved had been warm to the touch and he was certain that he'd just helped Drew move Stacy's body to cover up her murder. Afterward, Thomas drank himself into a stupor, and this is when he stumbled over to a friend's house, confessing to what he believed he'd just done. His friend advised him to contact the police. Instead, Thomas made another tragic decision. He went home and attempted to take his own life. As Thomas received treatment in the hospital, his friend disclosed the entire situation to Thomas's girlfriend, and together, they made their way to the police station. After his full confession to law enforcement, Thomas was granted immunity. Once news of Stacy's disappearance was picked up by local news stations, the story quickly became headline cable news. National media outlets descended on Bolingbrook and swarmed the once peaceful cul-de-sac. The sensational story of a cop with a young, pretty missing wife plastered the airwaves. And from the get-go, Drew's interactions with the media were abnormal. Abnormal for a husband whose wife was missing and abnormal for a husband who was suspected of being involved in his wife's disappearance. Please go home. Thanksgiving's the next couple days. Please go home. Please leave me alone. Please don't get involved in my little world. <laughs> At first, Drew avoided the attention as much as he could, but it didn't take long before it appeared. He was basking in the limelight. Day and night, news crews camped outside of his home, eager to catch a glimpse or interact with Drew. And Drew Peterson did not disappoint. When leaving or entering his home, Drew appeared to swagger down the driveway like it was a catwalk for the media, hamming it up whenever a camera was shoved in his face. Wearing a white shirt, gray coat, blue jeans and gym shoes, how's that? <laughs> what do you want to talk about? 
His interactions with the media came across as a grimy politician running for election. But instead of running for office, Drew's goal was to convince the world that Stacey wasn't, in fact, even missing, rather that she had simply run off with another man. We've seen this tactic used before in several other episodes. It's a tale true crime listeners have heard time and time again when it comes to the cases we cover. Drew's bizarre tactics, it seemed, was to come across as being extremely casual by being brash and crude. Perhaps he thought it would win over the court of public opinion. The math isn't mathing, but let's keep going. As it turns out, the news vans in front of Drew's home were just the beginning of his media tour. In People magazine, Drew was quoted saying that the women in his life had disappointed him. He went on to say that his mother was a diligent housewife. My dad would get up and go to the bathroom and my mother would have the bed made. I expected all of my wives to be like my mom, meticulous housekeepers, and they weren't. On the Today Show, Drew chuckled as he pleaded for his wife to come home. In another interview, he used his children as props for the cameras. He claimed that he had spoiled Stacy by paying for breast implants, LASIK eye surgery, dental work and a tummy tuck, and many other gifts, like he was the victim of some gold digger. He also blamed any marital strife on Stacy's menstrual cycle and mood-altering medication. And no, we're not making this up. By November 2007, Drew had officially become a suspect in Stacy's disappearance. But Drew wasn't slowing down the media tour. Instead, he called into a radio show to set up a contest to win a date with Drew. Another time, he called into a radio show pretending he was about to confess to something dire, but then laughed and called it a prank. Drew was even in discussions about appearing on an HBO reality show set in a Nevada brothel. Needless to say, he was going full-blown trash human and his callous antics didn't help his attempts to appear innocent in Stacy's disappearance. As you can deduce yourself, he came off as misogynistic and a narcissist, to say the least. And we're talking the very least here. Once, he was even caught on camera cutting down purple ribbons tied around lampposts, which had been placed there to honor Stacy as the search for her continued. He even sunk so low as to say that history was repeating itself and that Stacy was just like her mother who had abandoned her as a child. Eventually, Drew even hired a publicist for himself. In contrast, Stacy's sister Cassandra gave pleading news conferences. She openly blamed Drew, even calling into the same radio show when she heard his voice, to demand he admit to killing Stacy and to reveal where he had hidden her body. Every step of the way, every media appearance or call-in radio show where Drew tried to smugly pass himself off as innocent, Cassandra was there firing back. Get him, Queen. Amid widespread media and public speculation about what really happened to Stacy Peterson, behind the scenes, police were struggling to find enough hard evidence to implicate Drew. Even so, Stacy's disappearance managed to become the catalyst for another investigation centered around Drew. Three months after Stacy went missing, State's attorney, James Glasgow, 
reopen the investigation into Kathleen's death. Ironically, these two women, pitted against each other by a toxic husband, were now in a way coming to one another's rescue in the most tragic and unlikeliest of ways. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Just two months before she went missing, Stacy met with Reverend Neil Shorey at a local coffee shop where she confided that the night before Kathleen's body was discovered in her bathtub, that she'd woken up to find Drew missing from their bed and nowhere to be found in the rest of the house either. A couple hours later, Stacy heard the garage door open. It was Drew, dressed all in black and carrying a duffel bag. When he came inside the house, he went straight to the laundry room, stripped off all his clothing, and dumped the contents of the duffel bag into the laundry as well. Curious about what he dumped inside, Stacy checked the washing machine and saw women's clothing that didn't belong to her. Drew then apparently told her she knew what he'd done. Drew then sat Stacy down and coached her on what to say to the police in order to provide him a false alibi. After the state decided to reopen Kathleen's case, her body was exhumed and a second autopsy revealed that her death had not been an accident. In fact, her body showed evidence of defensive wounds and the gash on her head was inconsistent with a fall in the bathtub. Kathleen's death was now being ruled a homicide. But oh no, Drew was not going to let a missing wife and an impending arrest for murder taint his attempts at finding true love. I am not joking right now. Only 10 months after Stacy went missing, Drew got engaged again. This time to 24-year-old Christina Rains, moving her into the house he'd shared with Stacy and the children. As it turned out, Drew met Christina when she was only 15 years old. After her father reported Christina for skipping school to police, Drew happened to be the officer who had responded to that call. Later, Christina claimed her entire engagement to Drew was merely a publicity stunt arranged by Drew's attorney. The blue wall Drew hid behind finally crumbled under the weight of evidence, and he was arrested in May of 2009 for the murder of Kathleen Savio. 
Drew's notoriety did help score a dream team of lawyers led by Joel Brodsky, who appeared just as media-hungry and full of bravado as Drew. Attending Drew's media appearances like the two of them were on a press junket. His antics in front of the camera rivaled Drew's when it came to Stacy's whereabouts. Who? Stacy who? Stacy who? She's on your witness list. Oh, that's oh, Stacy. <laughs> Proving Drew's guilt in Kathleen's murder trial was not going to be a slam dunk for prosecuting attorney James Glasgow by any means. With limited evidence, Glasgow relied heavily on hearsay statements made by Stacy and Kathleen to third parties. And this was a highly controversial aspect of the trial. The Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees a defendant's right to challenge any witness testifying against them. And because Stacy was missing and Kathleen was deceased, it would make cross-examination impossible. But because Drew had already failed so terribly in the court of public opinion, the Illinois state legislature managed to pass a brand new law in 2008, appropriately called Drew's Law, which allows prosecutors to present statements by an unavailable witness in court. To do so, they must establish three criteria. One, proof of the defendant's or adverse party's responsibility for the witness's murder. Two, the reliability of the statements. And three, admission of the statements serving justice. During the murder trial, Reverend Neil Shorey played a crucial role by revealing what Stacy had confided in him on the night Drew had disappeared from their bed and came home to dump the women's clothing in the washing machine, and then how he coached her into lying to police about where he was the night before Kathleen was found deceased. Other detrimental testimony came from Harry Smith, Kathleen's former divorce lawyer. Harry Smith relayed, that Stacy Peterson expressed wanting to divorce Drew and had asked about using Drew's murder of Kathleen as leverage in the divorce proceedings. Finally, the pleas of Kathleen and Stacy were being heard and the jury found the one-time cop of the year, Drew Peterson, guilty of murdering Kathleen and he was sentenced to 38 years in prison. It made me feel good to see, to see him chained up like a dog that he is. Came over, Drew. You know, it's, you know, he can wipe the smirk off his face and, you know, it's time to pay. It's, a, it's a, an incredibly positive statement by our society that we will not tolerate this kind of bullying, tormenting of women and indiscriminate murder. This man murdered her because he was larger than, than she was. He's, he's, he's basically a coward. This guy never did anything. When, the, when he was on the man's agency, they tell him to go watch the back door when they hit the door at the battering ram, and he'd still be there following them in. He always got everybody else to do his, his heavy work. He's, he was a thug. He would threaten people because he had a gun and a badge, and nobody ever took him on. We took him on now, and he lost. You might think the Drew Peterson saga would have ended after his murder conviction, but it didn't because Drew seems to think he's in control at all times and losing is not an option. From prison, Drew tried to have prosecutor James Glasgow executed in a murder-for-hire plot. What he didn't realize was that his fellow inmate 
was not so loyal to the ex-cop and recorded the entire conversation. Yeah. Good. Just keep in mind, everything's recorded. Right, no, no, it was, it was, I told him, told him what you said. Basically, go ahead and kill him. Right. That's what you wanted, right? <laughs> it ain't no, ain't no turning back. Okay. As for Drew, this added another 40 years to his already 38-year prison sentence. Drew Peterson cheated on every woman he was with and allegedly cheated at his job as a police officer whenever it suited him. He used his position of power to bully the women he claimed to love. He took two mothers away from their children, and he'll die in prison for his actions. Drew's children with Stacy were raised by his eldest son, Stephen, who in recent interviews stated he now believes his father is guilty. Drew's lawyer, Joel Brodsky, was disbarred from practicing law and recently stole the spotlight again by threatening to tell police the location of Stacy's body, breaking attorney-client privileges. Stacy Peterson's case is still open, and to this day, Cassandra Kales still searches for her sister.